Good morning and welcome. Thanks for coming today and good to see you all. Uh, a few announcements for you uh, this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, there's a card on our Welcome Center called a Connect Card, and we'd love for you to fill that out and let us know of your attendance with us, ways we could connect with you, or ways that we can pray for you. There's a section on there for anybody, really, uh, that would like to have prayer uh, this week. Let us know how we could pray for you. I want to let you know our harvest offering from last week and really from all the month of uh, November was, was totaled up after last Sunday. And uh, this year's harvest offering, as of last Sunday, that is, uh, came in at $28,465. Uh, so thank you so much for your generosity. Yeah, amen. And uh, that, that money, as we told you, we're going to two different projects. Uh, part of that money is going to go to Romania to continue help with the camping ministry there. And the other portion is going to go to uh, Brazil, to Fortaleza, uh, in the city of Fortaleza, the church plant that's trying to buy some land. And so we thank you for your generosity. Also, thank you to those who helped with the food distribution on Friday. Uh, John uh, Forshee's organization and all the, the many hands that, that helped uh, make that go is another a little bit of a different uh, time again a little bit of a scramble uh, with uh, a little uh, a few few things that didn't go as expected but uh, there were some 240 families that uh, were served on fr on friday uh, that is uh, way way up from the last time we did the food distribution so um, so we're thankful for those who were able to help uh, serve and we're thankful for uh, your giving that made that possible uh, to purchase the food uh, that was distributed so thank you for that uh, a couple other yeah sure thank you Lucretia um, also a couple other announcements there are baby bottles in uh, the, in the foyer and uh, some of you may be wondering um, don't we normally do that at Mother's Day and if you think that you're right we normally do that at Mother's Day uh, but due to obvious uh, situation this this year uh, with uh, the pandemic and uh, such we did not do that this year and so we're going to do an advent baby bottle boomerang uh, for positive alternatives and so all that money is going to obviously go to them they've, they've like a lot of ministries and a lot of organizations had a tough year uh, they, they missed out on a number of their fundraising opportunities and so this is a small way that that uh, we can be involved and so if you'd like to take one and fill it up with change or if you if you don't do change you just want to put some cash in it or a check in it that's fine too uh, they'll accept that and uh, if you bring those back by the end of the year maybe the the last sunday in uh, december that would be good and then we will get those uh, two positive alternatives uh, this coming saturday saturday uh, december the 12th uh, we will be having a uh, a live nativity or living nativity uh, outside here uh, by the flagpole and there is a sign up in the back if you'd like to help there are some uh, areas that there still need to be covered so if you'd be willing to help us out there uh, please sign up uh, for that uh, even today and uh, if you have any questions about that Rachel Hager or Pastor Chris could uh, get you the right answers 
Uh, two other things uh, this morning. Uh, we do have uh, a room now in the building that's um, showing this, uh, airing this, broadcasting this as a closed circuit. And so um, if you're not comfortable being in this room, uh, there is uh, the youth room upstairs uh, where uh, you can view this this service being broadcast closed circuit, not, not a live stream on the internet. Uh, we're just closed circuit to within the building. Uh, so that uh, you can know that for the future or for today. And finally, we have communion today. So there are communion cups uh, in the foyer. If you haven't grabbed one yet, uh, feel free to do that um, before we get started here this morning. Uh, finally, a couple things to pray about and give thanks for. Uh, Betty Freeman, we told you last week, had a, had a heart attack and was, uh, had been in the hospital. Um, they did, a, uh, did some uh, looking around in her heart to consider whether or not she needed a stint or if there were any blockages, and there were no blockages. So we praise the Lord for that. Uh, she did, in fact, have a... Um, a heart attack, uh, but they think it was uh, related to stress uh, that caused the heart attack and not any, any blockages. As you probably know, Betty uh, lost her husband uh, earlier this year. Uh, obviously, again, it's been a rough year for a lot of people, and, and uh, that uh, certainly made it uh, all the more difficult for her. So uh, continue to pray for her. She is home now, and uh, she'll be staying with her sisters. That's good. And so just be uh, continue to be in prayer for Betty. Uh, some of you got the email yesterday. Yesterday, that Russ Lauder uh, went into the hospital uh, with a, a brain bleed and was in the ER in Jackson. They, they, they moved, maybe you don't know that, they, they have moved to Jackson, uh, Michigan, and they worked there more than a few days, and then this happened. And so as of last night, that's all we knew, uh, is that, that he had the brain bleed, that he was in the ER at that point. Uh, presumably he would be admitted. They would try to figure out how to, what, what they needed to do next. Uh, we've not heard what steps they have taken at this point. So pray for us, pray for Donna and uh, the family uh, during this time. Uh, final prayer request, we got a call yesterday from Sandy Bell and her, her granddaughter, Brittany, that'd be Sue's daughter, Brittany, uh, had, a, had a baby boy uh, recently. Uh, his name is Max. And uh, Max is having some lung problems, had some amniotic fluid uh, that got into his, his lungs. And so he is in the hospital in Hurley in Flint. Uh, Brittany is home. Uh, she was able to go in to see the baby, so that's, that's good. Um, but uh, just praying for his, his progress and his recovery uh, during this time. That being said, uh, would you stand with me and as we pray together and ask God's blessing on our time, pray for these requests, uh, and then we're going to sing uh, to the Lord uh, together. Father, uh, we give thanks this morning uh, for uh, who you are and for what you have done. God, we give thanks for your hand of mercy uh, on us and uh, most clearly and obviously seen through your son, Jesus. God, we do pray for our, our faith family. We ask your grace uh, for them today. We think of Betty and we uh, give thanks for your protection over her and we pray for a continued protection over her. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, Russ and we ask for your help for doctors to figure out what's going on with him and uh, see to it that, that they are able to treat him well. Uh, we even think of others who are, who are dealing with uh, physical difficulties, those who have 
have uh, are recovering, those who are, are uh, struggling, those who are in rehab. We think of Sally Milholland, and we ask for your help for her too. And Father, we pray for Brittany's uh, baby here, Max, and we ask that uh, you would, again, give wisdom to doctors. We pray for healing. We pray for grace for the family during this time. Another family has had a really rough road, and so, God, we ask for your grace uh, for that family during this time. God, we ask for your blessing on our service now as we worship together through song, as we worship together through your word. We pray that you'll receive the glory, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So please remain standing as we sing together. We're going to sing joy to the world. Let's sing. Thank you for your singing. Well, welcome again and Merry Christmas uh, to you. We are in the season now, aren't we? And uh, we are thankful uh, for all of that. Um, on the church calendar, not our personal calendar, but the traditional uh, church calendar, uh, this time is known as Advent. You may have heard of that before. Advent is uh, the time leading up to Christmas. Normally, it includes the, the four Sundays uh, previous to Christmas. And it is a time to, uh, to reflect. It's a time to remember. It's a time to anticipate again uh, the, the coming of Christ. Uh, Advent is to Christmas what Lent is to Easter. 
And now in, in our um, tradition, our Baptist tradition, we don't typically celebrate Lent and, and talk about those things too much. Uh, but the point of both of those exercises of Advent and Lent are the same. That these period, a period of time before uh, these, these events that prepare our hearts to properly worship and to properly uh, celebrate. So it's good for us to take time uh, to contemplate again uh, this month, this season, the coming of Jesus. Uh, this year, as we do that on Sunday mornings, we want to kind of draw back the lens uh, from the, the actual birth, from the, the nativity story, which we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but before that, we, we want to draw back or zoom out and, and understand once again or to rehearse once again the whole story. Now, why we needed Jesus? What was the promise that God had made? How was the promise to be fulfilled? And how are we to respond to it? Uh, we, we could use words like the problem, the promise, the provision, and then proclamation. Uh, the problem is what we'll look at this morning. Uh, the first book of the Bible it's called the book of Genesis, as many of you probably know. Uh, the book of beginnings or the book of origins. Uh, I'm convinced um, that the reason for wrong ideas and wrong thinking about life, uh, about creation, about mankind, about purpose, uh, about even Christmas itself is because of wrong ideas about the origin story. Uh, meaning that if we don't get the origin story right, then, then we're not going to end in the right pl place. We're not going to understand what life is about. We're not going to understand what, what we're about. We're not going to understand what Christmas is about. We're not going to understand what, what Easter is about. The reason God began with this book of origins uh, is because it matters. Because it informs everything. Quite literally, it informs everything. The beginning informs all things. However, there are in fact competing narratives to the, the biblical narrative, as you probably know. Right? There are those, those ideas or those uh, worldviews that uh, try to explain life, try to explain the beginning, try to explain uh, purpose without God, a void of God, absence of God. In fact, primarily, we think of atheism when we think of that, right? We think of the, the idea that, that God does not exist or the belief that God does not exist. Uh, atheism seeks to answer, um, uh, seeks to find the answer to life absent God himself. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about atheism in his own development, his own conversion in his book, Mere Christianity. And uh, listen, listen to, this is just a, a portion of the, the, obviously of the text, but um, he writes this, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. 
So C.S. Lewis is saying you, you can't actually get there. You, you, you can't actually uh, get to this place uh, where you think as though uh, God does not exist. It, it actually doesn't make any sense. Uh, we, we wouldn't know that God didn't exist if God didn't exist. Uh, so he's, he, he makes the argument that it, it's too simple. But there are other, certainly, narratives. There are false narratives. And we must, in the words of one author named Mark Sayers, we must wage narrative warfare against these ideas. Meaning we, we must tell the better story. We must know the better story. We must know the story, the only story, that actually does what we all long for. The, story, the only story that produces hope, the only story that produces human flourishing, the, the only story that actually fulfills, the only story that, that makes good on its promises of a future. So then, what is that story? Well, I'm glad that you asked. So let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter one. Some of you got that little joke, thank you. If you have a pew Bible this morning, that will be on, believe it or not, page one. That's right, page one, Genesis one. And in the first two chapters of the book of the Bible, in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, we see the creation story. In the beginning, chapter one, verse one, God created the heavens and the earth. As we were to read through chapters one and two, we quickly learn that God not only exists, which the Bible, by the way, never defends God's existence. You notice that? It never it tries to prove God's existence. It states it, it assumes it um, to be so. But as we move through chapters one and two, we see that, that God made light, he made land, he made seas, he made vegetation, he made sun and moon and stars, he made animals, he made all kinds of animals, birds and fish, livestock and beasts. He made, we finally see, he made man and he made woman. Man and woman were made complementary of one another. They were made in the image of God. Mankind was made by God and he was made for God. We were, we, we are mankind. We were made to be with God, to have fellowship with God, to walk with God. All of this we learned in the first two chapters of Genesis. All of this is desperately important as we think about humanity and our purpose on earth and Advent. We also learn at the end of, nearing the end of chapter two, that Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were naked and not ashamed. And the purpose of saying they were naked and not ashamed was to say that they were free. It was to say that there was no sin, there was no shame, there was no hiding, there was perfect union. That's the picture that, 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 that is being uh, written or drawn out for us. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, the garden of Eden, that is. And in chapter two, and well, in chapter one, two, we, we find that they were tasked with tending the garden. They had a job. Their job was to be in the garden, to, to take care of the garden. And God had provided for them all they could ever want, all they could ever need, right? In the garden, they had everything. They, had, they, they, they lacked nothing in the garden. God had given them free reign in the garden with one, count it, one prohibition. 
Uh, this morning, you, you've dealt with more than one prohibition since you got up this morning, haven't you? More than one command in your life has, has been evoked on you. Whether it's a stop sign or a red light or speeding or, or whatever, right? More than one. But here, only one. There's only one prohibition on Adam and Eve. And we see it in chapter two, look with me, in verses 16 and 17. Chapter two, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now this command presented a conflict. And author Sidney Gradonis writes this, God placed before man a clear choice. Continue in communion with God by trusting and obeying him or break communion with God by disobeying his command. Gradonis goes on, the choice is an obedient life with God in paradise or disobedience and death. That, that's, the, that's the scenario, right? That's the choice that's before Adam and Eve. Quite frankly, that's the same choice before us too, by the way. That's the choice that was laid before them. But at this point in the narrative, we find that, that, that all is right in the world, right? This, this is paradise. Uh, at the end of chapter one, God looks at everything that he made and he said, it was very good. It was the best. But as we know, paradise would not last long. This, this peace between God and man, between man and woman in the garden would soon be destroyed. It would be vandalized. And we see that as we move into chapter three, where we see corruption begin. Look at verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. What we come to find out is Satan comes to Eve here in just a moment, the rest of uh, verse one, and he speaks to her. He comes in the form of a serpent and he says to her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right? So what, what is Satan doing here? He's twisting God's words, right? He's taking what God had said and he's twisting it enough to make it sound unreasonable. Did, did God actually say you can't eat of any of those trees? And what was Eve's response in verse two? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, we shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall we touch it lest, we, lest you die. Uh, the tree that she's referring to certainly is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she had it mostly right, we would say, uh, yet she didn't have it fully right, did she? Because not only did she add something, but she changed something. She added, shall not touch it. God never said that. She's adding to it. And then she said, lest you die, instead of you shall surely die. Now those might seem minimal. They might seem like, are we just kind of making a mountain out of a molehill? But what is happening here is, first of all, they're false statements. They're not true. That's not what God said. And woe to us when we say something that God said that he did not say. When you hear someone said, God has said, or the word of God says, they better get it right. You're listening to a preacher and they say God's word says, they better get it right. 
Eve doesn't get it right. And this goes right along with Satan's tactic, isn't it? Satan's tactic is to make God's word sound unreasonable. Not only say we can't eat it, he, we can't even touch it. That's not what God said. Making God's word sound unreasonable. And Satan doesn't miss the opportunity as he follows up on Eve's comments in verses four and five, basically calling God a liar. You, you won't die. If you eat of that fruit, you will die. Actually, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. That's what's going to happen, Eve. Hey, don't, don't worry about that death part. You'll be like God. Essentially, the serpent is saying, God is keeping something from you, Eve. God is keeping the good stuff from you. There is good things that God will let you have. But guess what, Eve? I know better. I'll let you have it. Go ahead. Go ahead and have it and see how good it is. See what, what good comes out of that. I'm sure it's good. God's lying to you. Ever believe such a lie? That's a lie from Satan. Verse six, we see what Eve does. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took it, took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice, she saw it, she desired it, and she took it. Right? That's how it works, isn't it? That's how temptation works, that's how sin works. We see it, we want it, and we take it. You don't think Satan knows that. Satan absolutely knows that. He makes it look good. He shows us what we think we want, tells us how good it is, and we believe the lie. Eve believed the lie. She took the bait, we could say. She ate the fruit, and then she gives it to her husband, who was, at the end of verse six, with her. And he ate it too. Now, this is the first mention. We're only six verses into chapter three, but this is the first mention of Adam. Uh, the serpent comes to Eve and is saying all, things, all these things to Eve. But what we come to find out is when she eats the fruit, who's with her? Adam is with her. Adam's not off somewhere else doing his, what he should be doing or doing some sort of the Lord's business. No, no, he's with her. And he doesn't stop her. We remember, we just read it, chapter two, verses 16 to 17. He heard the command of God, don't eat of that tree. And he didn't stop her. Apparently he was silent. He was passive. And not only was he silent and passive, but he participated in it with her. And so sin entered paradise. Rebellion came into God's kingdom and the results were immediate. Look at verse seven. And the eyes of both were opened. Well, that's true, right? Satan said your eyes would be open. He got that part right. Not open the way he said. They opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Their eyes were opened. Open to what? Open to see their sin. Then they knew they were naked. Now there's shame. So they covered themselves. They made loincloths. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve. They fell as they acted in disobedience, in defiance, in rebellion against God, who was their king. And the result was that, that the, their innocence was lost. 
Uh, they were ashamed of their body. They made clothes. They, 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 verse 8, we see they, they hide from God. Their, their perfect marriage, their union was broken. As we keep reading, we find that the second result is now they fear God, not in a sense of reverence, but in a sense of being afraid of God. That their communion with God is broken, their fellowship. Why? Because now Adam and Eve are spiritually dead. Their brokenness is, is shown to us or uh, exemplified or demonstrated as they hide from God in verse 8. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Again, this, this idea of hiding from the presence of God. We looked at this with, with Jonah, right? Hiding from the presence of God, fleeing the presence of God as if this was possible. And yet this is what they try to do. Why? Because they're shame. Because sin has entered the world. Because sin has disrupted this relationship. But just like God pursued Jonah, God pursues Adam and Eve. And he confronts them in verses 9 through 11. And being the, the man in the relationship, right, Adam, um, we're going to find out Adam, Adam surely does the right thing, right? Adam stands up. He takes responsibility for his actions. He uh, willing to endure the consequences because he was the one responsible. Not so much, huh? What we actually find is uh, the beginning of, of the blame game, right? Blame shifting is as old as the garden, Maybe you've experienced this in your life. Maybe you've done it. Maybe you've had someone blame you for something that you didn't do. That's as old as the garden. And here we see it. And Adam, Adam's first up. Look at verse 12. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. If, if you missed it, what, what Adam just did was blame God for his sin. The, the woman... It's not blaming the woman. The woman who you gave me. It's not my fault. You gave me this woman. She gave me the fruit. What was I supposed to do? Not eat it? What would you expect me to do? Of course I ate it. Well, Eve follows Adam's pattern and passes the buck in verse 13. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So this is the, the basic, the devil made me do it, right? I have no responsibility over this. The devil made me do it. What do you want, what do you want from me? Both Adam and Eve fail to take responsibility for their sinful choices uh, and blame someone else for their decisions. As if God is going to be that easily misled, right? Like, step back for a second and think, okay, I'm trying to pull the wool over, over God's eyes on what I did and why I did it as though he doesn't know. Like, that sounds silly when we, we read it for Adam and Eve. But how silly is it for you and me when we do the same thing, when we're unwilling to own our own sin as though God doesn't know that we did what we did? as though he doesn't know we're the ones who are responsible when we push it off on someone else. It's silly when we, we read it here, but sometimes we can't even see it ourselves. Nevertheless, sin requires a payment. In the next few verses, we see that God hands down the judgment. The condemnation comes in, in three curses. 
In chapters one and two, we actually see three blessings. We see that God blesses the animals, he blesses humans, and he blesses the seventh day. Now here in chapter three, we see three curses, one on the serpent, one on the woman, and one on the man. In verses 14 and 15, we see the curse on the serpent is to, to crawl on its belly. Apparently before that, Satan, snakes or serpents did not uh, crawl on their, their bellies. They, they ate, he would eat the dust of the ground. He would have enmity between the woman and would be crushed by the offspring. Uh, the woman in verse 16, uh, her, her curse was that she would have pain in childbirth and that she would have authority issues with her husband. The end of verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And finally, the curse comes to Adam in verses 17 through 19. The curse would be that he would have to work hard for food. He would have to labor and it wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't go easy. And ultimately, death. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken and for you, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. In the next number of verses in chapter three, we see more consequences. Jump down to verse 22. And the Lord said, behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, and he drove out the man and uh, at, the, at the east of the garden of, of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned away, uh, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Finally, God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. Why? Because in their sinful condition, they could have eaten of the tree of life, which meant that they would have lived in their sinful condition forever. Uh, and even though the world is full of sin, and we know it is, full of evil, uh, we can at least know that one day it will end, right? One day sinful people will die. Evil will die. So God banishes them. He, he sends them out of the garden. And though this is uh, in some ways a grace that they don't uh, eat of the tree of, the, of life, it's also the worst of all punishments. And what we find is that sin separates from God, Intimacy with God is replaced with alienation from God, end quote. And here's the kicker in Genesis. That's where chapter three closes. Chapter three closes with Adam and Eve east of, of Eden, that the way back into the garden, the way back to fellowship with God, the way back to union with God has been blocked. It's guarded by cherubim. Paradise has been lost. And this is the great problem for humanity, that sin does in fact separate us from God. Sin entered the world in the garden and has spread to all men and we are all sinners. And there is nothing that we can do to bring ourselves back to God. There's no good deeds that we can do, no perceived self-righteousness or living that, that could measure up. There is nothing. This is the problem that humanity faces and we need help. But in chapter three, before the, the fruit 
is barely digested in the belly of Adam and Eve, God does indicate help is on the way. God does indicate a coming redemption. It's the, the silverest of linings. It's the glimmer of hope. And we see it in verse 15. Amid the, the curse against the serpent, God writes these words. Look at it with me in verse 15, chapter three, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and she and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what is called the proto-evangelium, which is meant to say the first gospel. Because what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter three is the good news that evil would not rule forever. That the offspring, or some of your Bibles say, the seed of the woman would triumph. Triumph over the serpent, over Satan, who would bruise the head of Satan, but Satan, or the serpent, would bruise his heel. What are they referring to? They're referring to the crucifixion. They're referring to the fact that when Jesus did what he did, he would crush the head of Satan. That is his death, burial, and resurrection. But in his death, he would be bruised. How did he do it? How did he come? Why did he come? Romans chapter five compares this first Adam with Jesus who is sometimes called the second Adam. Let me read some of these verses from Romans chapter five. Just try to stick with me. If you wanna go there, maybe that'll help. Romans chapter five, verses 11, 12 through 19. But just stick with me and listen. There's, just stick with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law, is not counted, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, the law, even over those who were sitting, uh, even though those who sitting was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's a little difficult. Let's get on to verse 15. But the free gift, what Jesus came to do, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's transgression, trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. And the free gift that is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam's. For judgment followed one tre trespass, which brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought what? Justification. For if, because of one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundant grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, that's what, Adam, that's what happened with Adam. Condemnation came to the world for all men. So one act of righteousness, this is Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
So even in Genesis 3, what God is pointing to is there's hope. There is redemption that's coming. There is another Adam, a second Adam. This is why Jesus had to come. He came to undo what the first Adam did. He came to be the true and better Adam. As one writer says, the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus came to solve our greatest problem, to meet our greatest need, to rescue us from the penalty of sin through his miraculous birth, his perfect life, and his substitutionary death. See, in place of condemnation and death, that's what Adam brought, Jesus brought justification, being made right with God and life. Jesus is the offspring whose heel was bruised as he crushed the head of the serpent in his death. It is death, it is burial, it is resurrection, which was victorious over sin, death, and hell, and Satan, and thereby providing salvation to those who would believe. But we do remember, as we have said, that chapter three ends with the way to God being blocked. Sin has alienated us from God. And therefore, we are on the outside looking in. That's what Genesis 3, 24 indicates. The garden is guarded by cherubim. So Jesus comes and does what he does, but, but how do we know that the way of God actually has been opened to us? Yes, Jesus did what he, he says he did, but how do we know that, that that way to God has been opened? How can we be assured that it's been opened? In the Old Testament, there were instructions for the tabernacle, which then the temple patterned those same uh, guidelines or same pattern. Um, in Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, God gives instructions on, on the, the curtain or the veil in the, the tabernacle. Uh, this, this veil, this curtain, separated the Holy of Holies. You might remember that. And we're told that it was to be made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, and to be finely spun linen, it was finely spun linen, and then it says this, with cherubim skillfully worked into it. In Second Chronicles chapter three, we see again in Solomon's temple, the same situation with the cherubim on it. This was symbolizing, it was picturing that the way to God, this way to the Holy of Holies, was blocked only through the cherubim. The cherubim were blocking the way to, to God. But what happened when Jesus died? Remember? Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 tells us that in the temple, there was a veil, and that that veil was torn. It was torn in two. That veil that, that, that had the images of, of cherubim on it, that signaled the way of God being blocked or protected, that no one could enter, no one could come in. No one who was not perfect could come in. That veil was torn, torn from top to bottom, which indicates that man could not do that, only God could do that. Torn from top to bottom, signifying to us that the way back to God was open. We could come back to God. One writer says it this way, the angelic guardians are disarmed and re-entry 
to the Edenic presence of God, Eden, is again permitted for the first time since the fall. That's beautiful. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, he, he was buried. Yes, he rose again. But how do we know that we can come to God? How do we know that there's a, there's a way back? We have a problem. We're outside looking in. How do we know? The veil in the temple being torn tells us there's a way back. Who's the way? I am the way, Jesus said. The truth and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We have a problem. We're on the outside looking in. How could we ever get back to God? Because Jesus came to do for us what no one else could do. Not only was he the offspring who crushed the enemy, but he is the way to God. He is the way that we can have fellowship with God again even now and one day enjoy eternal peace in paradise restored and to that we say even so come Lord Jesus we have a problem and Jesus has come to be our solution so as we observe the Lord's table this morning we see again this one who endured separation endured alienation from God suffering the penalty that we deserved so that we, so that sinners might be brought back to God. This is the great hope for the Christian. The great hope of the Bible is that there is a problem, but there is a solution found in Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, if you know him as Savior, if you have repented and trusted him by faith alone, we invite you to join us as we, we remember him through the Lord's Supper. But if you don't, meaning you've never come to Christ, you're not trusting Christ as your Savior, we ask for you to not observe this communion service, not to receive these elements, but instead to receive Jesus himself. If you're living in known unrepentant sin this morning, we ask for you to, uh, to abstain. Instead of receiving the bread and the cup, we ask for you to receive the forgiveness of Jesus found as we repent of our sins. Would you join me as we ask God's blessing on the bread? Father God, we thank you for the work of Jesus, his body that was pierced for our transgression. suffering the, the penalty for not his sin, for our sin. This morning, God, as we take of this bread, we remember. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Join me as we ask God's blessing on the cup. Father, we give thanks and ask your blessing now as we receive this cup this cup that symbolizes, reminds us of the blood of Jesus, the blood for which must, uh, the blood that must be shed, the only blood that, that was uh, accepted for the forgiveness of our sins. God, we say thank you.
in the same manner he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we look forward to the day when Jesus comes. We're so thankful that Jesus has come once and will come again. We're thankful for his first coming being the provision of salvation. And we're thankful, Father, for his coming again to bring us home. We look forward to it. May we live expectantly. May we live in light of it this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming today. God bless you. God.